this is an incredible, incredible, incredible honor and extra feelings, lots of extra feelings. My goal is not to cry, but also to entertain and to share a lot with all of you who have given so much to me. So this is an incredible honor to share a few of my favorite things. This is just a few, I have 45 minutes. I really could go on for two weeks, easily, easily. So, but these are a few. And I have a, just, just a couple of disclaimers, one that I'm sick, so, it, you know, excuse the voice cracking, and that there will be some swear words in some of the clips, because uh, every good podcast starts with a disclaimer. Um, but what I've done to try to sort of narrow down what I could do in this period of time was to tell the backstory of the Third Coast Festival, where the idea came from, how it evolved in its former, formative years to what it is today. And so this talk is just like, it's got favorite things just everywhere. I'm not gonna mention them every time I do them. You can keep track at home, but it's just riddled with them. So to tell you this story, I'm gonna take you all the way back in time to 1974, to my junior year at Peabody High School in Pittsburgh, PA, and Mr. Gilmore's English class. I honestly can't remember what the assignment was, but I clearly remember what I did, my project. I took that great novel of American literature, The Great Gatsby, and I turned it into a corny, over-the-top radio soap opera. I wrote a script based on the novel and convinced my neighborhood friends to play the parts of Gatsby, Daisy, Tom, and Myrtle. I researched radio commercials of the 1940s, like the Burma Shave shaving cream commercial, and made my brother read them. So my mother bought this tape recorder, and we spent, my friends and I spent the better part of the day gathered around it to record our guy Gatsby. When someone tripped over a line or missed a cue, I stopped this recorder, I rewound, and we started again, editing 1.0. Recently, I was cleaning up my childhood bedroom in Pittsburgh in preparation for selling the family home, and in a desk drawer, I came across this instruction booklet and my script for Our Guy Gatsby in its original red plastic folder. I know, what a find, right? I'm gonna read you just the first opening line. Okay, I'm 17, remember. Can a poor soldier from the Midwest win over the rich and beautiful lady he loves who in his absence has married a successful football player? <laughs> in my mother's handwriting, there are notes for musical selections and sound effects, footsteps, door slams, telephones ringing. The recorder we used that day is long gone and so is, likely for the best, the cassette of my English assignment. I much prefer the memory of it. Oh, you're so disappointed. <laughs> now, you might be wondering why a 17-year-old in 1974 wanted to make a radio soap opera out of the golden age of radio, because it was already ancient history. This, the answer was simple. I loved radio. And that included listening to Pirates Baseball. On hot summer nights, a slight breeze coming through the front door, lights out. My brother and I on the living room floor, my dad on the couch smoking a pipe, listening to announcers Bob Prince and Nellie King call the game. Three balls, two strikes. Milk Pap is working now all over the pitch. 
And there she goes. High down and kissing goodbye. My father was a kid-should-be-seen-not-be-heard kind of guy. But these nights, cheering on the bucks, it felt good to be hanging out together in the living room, a singular focus in mind, the bucks coming out on top. On most days, though, I was alone in my bedroom, and I listened to WDVE, the AOR, album-oriented rock station of the day, on the newly popular FM bandwidth, where you could hear music in high-fidelity stereo. I spent a gazillion hours doing nothing but listening. Winter, spring, summer, Emotional and drenched with heartache and longing, the better. Filled with your average teenage angst, grades, boys, social pecking order, family drama, the music gave me solace at the flip of a switch. And coincidentally, it's right at this same time that public radio was founded. My parents tuned into our local WQED public station for the classical music. But what drew me in was a radio optation of The Hobbit from the BBC. It was like nothing I'd ever heard before. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Yet, uh, uh, not a nasty, dirty wet hole, nor yet a dry, sandy, bare hole. My hole was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. It had a perfectly round door painted green, uh -huh. which opened onto a tunnel-shaped hall with panelled walls and floors tiled and carpeted, and lots of pegs for hats yes. and coats. But I'm very fond of visitors, do you see? And. He was quite well-to-do. I went to college and worked at WCBN, the University of Michigan radio station. Not spinning records, no, that would be way too cool. I was nerding out on a radio show I had created called Soft Solutions about alternative energy sources. <laughs> I also have, uh, no, those reel-to-reels I have in my basement, but no, no I'm, I'm not sharing those with you. There was no better place to hang out than WCBN's Warren Studios. Covered wall to wall with LPs, there I learned to cut tape, literally cut tape, using a grease pencil to mark the bits of unwanted tape, excising that tape with a razor blade, and finally taking thin blue sticky tape to secure the remaining ends together. Editing 2.0. I knew I wanted to work in public radio when I graduated from college. So I packed up my bright orange Volkswagen Squareback, and with my very few belongings, like those reel-to-reels, I moved to Chicago. I'd visited the city once and had fallen in love at first sight. After settling in, I cold-called WBEZ, which was then owned by the Chicago Board of Education. Back then, the daily schedule featured such kid-oriented shows as Science with the Count and Let's Talk About Books, a show I went on to produce, <laughs> hosted by the chief librarian, Winifred Duncan. Though most of the day's programming featured jazz and classical music and the ever-iconic stalwarts, morning edition, and all things considered. I asked about an internship, was transferred to Steve Hart, 
who produced kids' radio shows with a crew of actors from the public schools. Steve offered me the internship. Actually, it was a volunteer position. It lasted two years. This sounds familiar, right? While I worked evenings waiting tables. It's not an uncommon public radio story. And then I finally scored my own job producing kids' shows. It was the early 1980s, NPR was still young, guided by Bill Seemering's ambitious mission statement. Here's just a snippet read by Bill. National Public Radio will not regard its audience as a market or in terms of its disposable income, but as curious, complex individuals who are looking for some understanding, meaning, and joy in the human experience. My early radio experiences, Pirates Baseball, The Hobbit, WDVE, College Radio, and the wild sense of possibility in public radio's earliest years are all built into the DNA of Third Coast. I worked on a lot of different shows at WBEZ, but found my feet really and truly when I was asked to lead Chicago Matters, the public affairs series. Each year, alongside the public TV station, public riot library, and Chicago Reporter, we presented two months of stories on a single subject. These included health, education, and religion during the years I ran the project. But the year before I took over, the theme was race and racism. David Isay produced the groundbreaking audio documentary, Ghetto Life 101. Teenagers, Lee Allen Jones and Lloyd Newman, were given tape recorders to keep audio diaries of their daily lives. Lee Allen and Lloyd, 13 and 14 years old, were natural storytellers, and they took those recorders everywhere they went for 10 days. I live here. This is home. What's up, Mary? What's up, Doodoo? This is my walk every day. It's gonna take me on a little journey through my life. Here's my life. Here. My name's Lee Allen Jones, and I'm 13 years old. I live in the house just outside the Otterby Wells Projects. My best friend Lloyd Newman lives in the Otterbys. This is our story. Every morning, I pick up Lloyd on the way to school. Today, we were ready to work, strapped with our tape recorders and microphones. We got the time book call looking like time book call. This is Lloyd Newman, and I'm 14 years old. Ghetto Life garnered a lot of attention and awards and controversy, too. Controversy that the program reinforced negative stereotypes about black inner-city life. So the piece not only started a renaissance in audio storytelling, but a critical conversation about ethics and diversity in our field. Through Chicago Matters, I was commissioning six new docs a year, working with the independent producers of the day who were crafting beautiful narratives. Katie Davis, Cecilia Weissman, Scott Carrier, Joe Richman, and many others. It was an amazing opportunity. And yet, I was becoming kind of agitated. And that's because I didn't feel like audio documentary was getting the recognition it deserved. It wasn't reviewed, promoted, or discussed as an art form. 
It really wasn't considered an art form or a field at all, and that didn't seem right. By now, it's 1999. This American Life had been on the air for a couple of years and was already turning listeners into rabid fans and fans into young radio producers. One day, I was flipping through the art section of the Chicago Tribune, and there I saw the annual glowing review of the Sundance Film Festival. The article's point was that some of the best films at Sundance that year were documentaries. The article quoted Errol Morris, director of The Thin Blue Line, explaining why he felt docs were beginning to garner greater, greater attention. He said it was the possibility of telling stories that would not be told otherwise, telling stories involving real people, involving a connection to the real world, which is really powerful. But also sounds really familiar. What medium does that as well or better than any other? And that was my breaking point. I had toddler twins at home, looking at one of them now. I was just recovering from a health crisis that very nearly killed me, but I knew what I wanted to do, create a Sundance for radio. I don't know if I marched into then WBEZ GM Tori Malatia's office, but I kind of like to think that I did, with the idea to create such a festival. Thankfully, Tori took an interest, and he invited me to share the concept with the board, and they put up some seed money, which I used to go to Memphis for the public radio programming conference later that year. It was the first public announcement of the plans. I gave an early morning talk to about 100 program directors and producers. I found that very first talk. I do tend to keep things. <laughs> And here's exactly what I told folks. So this is 1999. That WBEZ would host a competition drawing the best work from around the world, and that the winning stories would live on the internet. Believe it or not, that was a really radical idea at the time. <laughs> and that we'd host a conference on documentary and feature reporting and production. And it would include listening rooms for people to share their work, workshops to learn new skills, and roundtables to discuss important issues. And it was called the International Radio Documentary Festival. Thankfully, Tori urged me to change the name. I chose Third Coast to represent Chicago, but also to express the idea that any coast, anywhere in the world, literally or figuratively. Looking back, it's surprising that we dropped radio from the much better named Third Coast International Audio Festival. You'd think we knew there was a revolution in radio coming. And I did have some reasons to be optimistic. The internet, as I said, was becoming a place to listen to stories from around the world. And so radio was losing its ephemeral, here today, gone tomorrow quality. And a young producer named Julie Shapiro had just walked into my life. One day, truly, we bumped into each other in the halls of WBEZ. I call it my Mary Poppins moment. <laughs> that was a great sound. Julie, who is now the executive producer of Radiotopia from PRX, brought an artistic sensibility, fresh ears, wit, and cleverness to my more journalistic and radio-steeped roots. Her resume included working at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke and starting a festival called Transmissions featuring experimental music as well as film. Recently, I called Julie to ask her about her DNA that is hardwired into Third Coast. I always feel like for me, it started with listening to music, like really 
coming out of into into and out of college and, and listening to more and more experimental music and um, less commercially successful music, noise, uh, punk rock, the Riot Girl, you know, sort of music with principle, also um, political music. And so I had that corner of my existence, and I was also doing a zine, so I was publishing a little bit, and I believed in kind of openness and community voice and expression. And then through my travels and road trips and things, started listening to public radio and realized that 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 would be an actual field or profession I could shoot for and marry some of the things I believed in about the primacy of listening over watching. I was a little bit more um, obnoxious about it back then. I did have a kill your television sticker on my car, etc. Um, <laughs> I do want to show you that kill your television bumper sticker. It was very popular in the 1980s before Netflix. So Julie and I put our heads together and started making Third Coast into Third Coast. And in 2001, it debuted as a website, an audio library, which is now home to thousands of stories, a conference, competition, and broadcast of the winners. I don't think it's a coincidence that Transom, PRX, StoryCorps, and a newly reinvigorated air all date back to the same era. The competition's first entries came from around the world on CDs and cassettes, and each day we'd wait impatiently for the mail to arrive. The winners that year are still some of my most favorite things. The gold went to the Vietnam tapes of Lance Corporal Michael A. Baranowski, produced by Jay Allison and Christina Egloff. It was the story of a young Marine in Vietnam who wanted nothing more than to become a radio host, and so he chronicled his experience of the war on a tape recorder that he lugged around wherever he went. He sent his tapes home to his family, but tragically, he never made it home himself. It's dark now. We're waiting for the illumination to go off. <laughs> That's a hairy thing. Hairy feeling. Sitting there in the dark with all that stuff going on. Sounds of the enchanted forest. Look at all Jesus. That's too close. Airstrike. Wipe napalm all over that place. Look at that. You're in the Pepsi generation. I don't see any, any indication of fear in his voice. We didn't know but what we were going to have to grab our rifles and M14 or in, in grenades and have at it, because if they'd have broken through that point, then we were going to be in an all-out hand-to-hand combat. And that very potential, there was no way I could have stood there and did what he did. Now it's dark, quiet. Everything's been quiet for about 15 minutes now. I was just crouching down in the hole there, talking to a hand grenade. I thought it was the microphone. I realized what I was doing. And the rain's just on time. Now it'll rain the rest of the night. In 2001, we didn't know what was going to come over the transom when we issued our first call for entries. 
And one thing we discovered was that youth radio groups were making some of the most powerful work out there. Radio rookies at WNYC entered Heroin by Marianne McCune, Serena Patel, and high school student Janice Nieves. In it, Janice confronts her father about his heroin addiction and shares her own complicated feelings of love, anger, and embarrassment. It's the love that is etched in my mind from this Silver Award winner. I called my mom in the kitchen while she was cooking chicken and fries. What was his personality like? He's always been a good person. Very lovable, understanding, very attentive. Basically a kind of person that you wouldn't think one day they would actually, you know, use drugs. I can't remember when exactly it all started. What I do remember is the park we used to play in. There was this gate that was always locked. We had to climb over it to get in. I always had this scare because I hated climbing that gate. I would get laughed at because I was too heavy to push my own weight. But my daddy would come and give me a push, and I would always make it. And I loved him for that. I loved being daddy's little girl. Julie and I were even more in the dark about what to expect from the international entries. Julie had traveled to Sydney, Australia for the International Features Conference, so we knew that there was this thing called a feature. Cinematic, lushly produced works, often a blend of fiction and nonfiction. Still, we did not expect the bronze award-winning entry, Von Trapped, from Natalie Kestetcher of Australia. But, oh how heavenly to know that radio can do this. Satire, snark, and fiction in the context of history. I have a secret. Something no one knows anything about. Except you. Or you will soon. I'm Nicholas Hammond, and many years ago I played Friedrich von Trapp in a film called The Sound of Music. You see, I'm ashamed. It's an addiction. No, not drugs. Gambling, if only. It's far more embarrassing than that. It seems to be something that people still like to see, and the family seems to be a family that people still kind of relate to. My addiction renders my life a fantasy, a world inhabited by smiling blondes who beckon me. I only have relationships with Austrians and when we're together, you know, intimately I imagine that I'm with my fantasy blonde and of course nothing can ever really develop and I can't develop which is why I'm here talking to you <laughs> Oh, Natalie Australia continued to show us the potential of radio. In 2002, Sherry DeLise, Australian by way of Texas, and sound designer John Jacobs gave the world IF. It was a turning point in my audio education. It's a story of a young boy in a children's hospital, not just any hospital. This one has an aviary, a gardens, and a radio station. Why are fish inside a fishbowl? Yeah. 
in the children's hospital, I'd be thinking, thinking, who's in the cage? Is it me or is it you? Well, it's me, you fish. <laughs> when I first get there, they weigh me, you know, take a blood test, see how high I am, put it, write it all down. And about an hour later, someone comes in and says, well, this is what's up with you. This, 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 this and this. And in my case, it was low calcium. And this, 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 this and this. That's just a minute. The piece is 623. Please go find it on the Third Coast website. It's documentary is music. If is part of my internal library of stories and sounds, reference points and context for hearing and understanding the world through audio. The winners I just played and those still to come in this talk are all part of my internal jukebox. The very first Third Coast conference in 2001 is like this one in most ways. There were fewer people there, just 200, but that's all we thought we could handle. Who here was there then? There are people. Stand up and be counted, woo! All right, yeah. <laughs> we knew that we wanted the conference to focus on the art and craft of audio storytelling, to feature producers doing groundbreaking work, and to offer sessions that would live on beyond the gathering for all to hear. Our job was actually pretty easy. Simply bring you, the producing community, together. We knew that you'd make the most of it to form friendships, collaboration, and dream up magnificent projects. We were happily surprised by the marriages and the children that also came along. <laughs> Julie remembers it this way. What was very clear right away was that the audio community was like a very brilliant and generous and hungry one. And it just felt like no one else was, was offering anything to the community as a whole the way we were hoping to. Yeah. And so that was a lot of the incentive, was just meeting the people, meeting more people, and then seeing, you know, this is when a ton of young people were, like, rushing in from other fields because of what they were hearing for the potential for creative storytelling. And it seemed like, to me, it was always, like, the revelation of who showed up. People just kept coming. The 2001 conference came just six weeks after the horrors of 9-11. But still, everyone got on planes and came to Chicago, and I am still so thankful for that. The Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, were there. And they didn't waste a moment. They started seeking out collaborators from the moment they walked in the door, enhancing their plans for the Sonic Memorial Project. The dock commemorated the life and history of the World Trade Center and its surrounding neighborhood through audio artifacts, voicemail messages, and interviews. Thanks for calling the Lost and Found Sound Line here at NPR. This is Jay Allison. At this moment, we are gathering audio that relates, in some way, to the events of September 11th, before, during, and after. We're looking for audio artifacts both personal and historic. We came together over the last year. Radio producers, artists, construction workers, bond traders, secretaries, archivists, iron workers, policemen, 
widows, firefighters, public radio stations and listeners to chronicle and commemorate the life and history of the World Trade Center and its neighborhood. We appreciate your help in documenting this time, these places, and these people. Thanks. Message 33 was received at 10.50 a.m. Thursday. My name is Jake Nichols. As a kid, I grew up in a tenement on 49th Street, Hell's Kitchen in New York. And when the World Trade Center buildings were going up, my dad told me, when those are finished and the race between the two buildings is over, we're going to go up on the top. My dad said at the time, these buildings will last for a thousand years and they'll be here forever. Hundreds of you left your testimony and remembrances, phone messages, music, and small shards of sound. From these calls and from dozens of interviews done by producers across the nation, comes this collection of voices, stories, and sounds. We call it a sonic memorial. Looking for inspiration in the earliest days of Third Coast, the rich heritage of storytelling from such countries as Denmark, Germany, and France opened Third Coast's audio world even further. And we wanted to share this newfound inspiration with American makers. In 2002, we invited independent maker Kay Mortley, based in Paris, to present a conference session about the European radio feature. Here's how Kay described the work in her session. These pieces are mind movies, road movies, sculpted out of reality. The information they convey is lateral, quirky, personal. Not giving answers, but inviting the listeners to interact with the different worlds into which they beckon. Here's a snippet of one of Kay's features. This is the English adaptation of Under the Wing Of, originally produced in French. I have a soft spot for this work about an elderly woman in Paris who rescues pigeons, like Pidgey, who has been our mascot since we became independent in 2009. The woman in this story rescues pigeons from the streets and looks after them in her apartment in Montmartre. How many have you got, really? Could we count them? Well, now, déjà, il y en a 12, I've had up to 86. makes me sad when they go away. It's never me who sets them free, it's my neighbour. She puts them in a plastic bag. Bah, vous savez, ça me fait mal au cœur quand ils partent. D'ailleurs, quand, quand, quand on en relâche, c'est jamais moi. Hein. Then she lets them out by the cemetery. Remember that after Kay's session, she was literally surrounded by a crowd of young, excited producers, new converts, and it was so, so cool to see. So here we are. It's about 2003, and we get our first inkling of this thing called a podcast, and we have no idea what it is, except that a few people are really excited about it, and that it might have something to do with iPods or and RSS feeds, maybe. 
One of those really excited people is Benjamin Walker. And he convinced us in 2005 that he should lead a session called Podcasting Believe the Hype. I don't know if there was actually hype in those days. <laughs> in this session, co-hosted by Todd Maffin on the right, Benjamin held up his phone and said, this was the future of audio storytelling, and I'm pretty sure we really thought he was out of his mind. <laughs> Except now we know he was clairvoyant. Most everyone at this festival is an uh, independent producer, and I, I think for me, the one goal I have is at the end of this 90 minutes, you will all realize that this is an amazing moment for you, and it is a moment to be seized, and I hope that I will, we will have showed you some ways in how you can seize this moment. So we all know what happened next. Podcasting changed our world, but it was a slow transformation at first. The first podcast to win a Third Coast competition won the gold. It was 2011. The story completely captured the judge's imagination. I remember them being at once both certain, but also really surprised by their own choice. The Wisdom of Jay Thunderbolt by Love and Radio's Nick Vanderkolk, Brendan Baker, and Nick Williams. They were surprised by this because it's about a man who runs a strip club out of his home in Detroit. And it didn't sound like anything that had ever aired on public radio or could ever air on public radio. And just who is he? What does he do? Jay runs a strip club out of his house. Good afternoon, Thunderbolt Entertainment. Hi, Derrico. Mm -hmm. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hey. Other than owning the strip club, fake strip club, he is the bouncer, he's the DJ, accountant. Basically, he's the party planner. He does everything. You guys got any money on you? You want some dancers? Besides the dancing. I'm trying to <laughs> You're fucking chicken shit cocksuckers, aren't you? Not in any dancers. Give me a call in two hours, dear. Cause I'm gonna throw him the fuck out when this bottle of, this bottle's almost gone now. All right, bye. By 2011, Third Coast was no longer part of WBEZ. We'd become a completely independent arts organization with our own board of directors. To the slate of Third Coast, we'd added this radio show resound hosted by Gwen Maxi, and public listening rooms. Now this felt like one of our craziest, craziest ideas back in 2003, but we'd signed ourselves up to be a Sundance for radio, and that meant people coming together for group listening experiences. And so this was really important to us, not only listening, but sharing opinions about the work, both the content and the art, and it worked in theaters, coffee shops, classrooms, living rooms, and bars. Though bars are the best, a pint and an audio doc go really well together and gets the conversation flowing. And now I love that the shared listening experience of live podcasts has become a very big thing. And while we no longer host the annual Short Docs Challenge, I can't leave it out of my favorite things. From 2004 to 2016, we wanted to give everyone, fans and makers alike, the, a reason to stretch their audio muscles. It was the brainchild of Julie Shapiro, borrowing from the Fluxus art movement, using creative constraint, rules in other words, 
to foster orally ambitious audio works. For the 2010 challenge, Third Coast teamed up with the indie experimental, sadly now defunct band, The Books. The rules were to create a three-minute piece inspired by a book song title using samples from the band's vast sonic library. From 2010, here's an excerpt from one of the most iconic short docs, as timely now as ever. Produced by Neil Farrell and called All You Need Is a Separation Barrier, from Baghdad to Western Sahara, an alphabetic listing of the world's prominent separation barriers builds a wall of its own. Name, Baghdad wall, country, Iraq, built, year, under construction, length, five kilometers, type, civil pacification. Name, Belfast Peace Lines, country, Northern Ireland, built, year, 1970s, length, 0.5 kilometers, average, type, civil pacification. Name, Ceuta border fence, country, Spain and Morocco, built, year, 2001, length, 8 kilometers, type, and a illegal immigration. Name, China, North Korea barrier, country, China and North Korea, built, year, under construction, length, 1416 kilometers, type, and a illegal immigration. Name, Egypt, Gaza barrier, country, Egypt and Palestinian territories, built, year, 1979, length, 3.071 kilometers, type, and a terrorism and illegal immigration. Name, Indian Kashmir Barrier, country, India, built, year, 2004, length, 550 kilometers, type, and a terrorism, name, Indo-Bangladesh Barrier, country, India, and Bangladesh. There's two more minutes of that piece, and it really does build a wall of its own in a really impactful way. So, what was that? Was it a radio piece? Was it a podcast episode, a web series? Does it matter? I have to tell you, that from our earliest days at Third Coast, Julie and I began a mantra. Third Coast would be platform agnostic. Share your great audio storytelling, and it doesn't matter if it's a graduate school thesis, a radio story, a personal project you shared on the web, or now a podcast. Use radio to transport us, reveal new ideas, make us feel, think, and reflect. That's what mattered on day one and what matters to this day. And with that, I wrap up some of the deep, deep history of Third Coast and the time before Serial and the podcasting boom that we're all experienced together now. To the extent that Third Coast paved the way for this robust audio-making community, I am more than thrilled. I'm also deeply appreciative None of what took place in the founding year of Third Coast and what has evolved since would have been possible without the amazing staff who are part of Third Coast story. Somewhat chronologically, Julie Shapiro, Lauren D, Gwen Maxi, Katie Dunn, Roman Mars, Delaney Hall, Katie Mingle, Maya Goldberg-Safer, Sarah Geis, Dennis Funk, Isabel Vasquez, Ariel Gentilin, Emily Kennedy, Rebecca Silverman, and so many other talented part-time staff and interns. And thanks to you here today, the most generous arts and journalism community that anyone could ever imagine or hope for. My final favorite thing of the day has been watching this community soar. Hearing your earliest work come through the competition or Short Docs Challenge, working with you as Third Coast interns, meeting you at the Third Coast Radio Residency as a conference volunteer, 
or at a, at a listening room, the list goes on. And then being so moved by your accomplishments in your work, which leads me to my last clip of this talk. Phoebe Wang's impassioned call to make this field of ours more diverse in all ways. Phoebe was on the stage of the Alhambra Palace last year, accepting her award as best new artist for her piece, God and the Gays. As we all know, it's no secret, we need a lot more people of color in this industry. I hear people say all the time that uh, we tried our best to find a person of color for our job opening. And we couldn't find one because not enough people of color applied or because they weren't qualified enough for the position. And I think that is total bullshit. Because what I hear when people say we tried our best, what I really hear is we chose to spend our time and our money on something that we decided was more important than hiring a person of color. And what I also hear is we're okay with alienating a massive group of listeners who don't have any space or emotional energy to hear from another straight white dude talking at them. And we're okay with having massive blind spots when we share stories about people of color. After Third Coast, Phoebe, Adiza Egan, Afi Yellowduke, Zakia Gibbons, and Aliyah Pabani joined forces to create POC in audio.com. Kudos to this group for defining a problem and also one of the remedies. That's a hashtag favorite thing for me. In a few weeks, our new executive director will begin a new chapter for Third Coast. And I'm so excited to watch and cheer the crew on from the sidelines. The audio storytelling field is bigger and better in just about every way today, but especially in its diversity of makers, stories, editors, and ever slowly but surely, the people calling the shots. Now everyone and their brother, mine included, has a podcast. <laughs> What's next for me? I'm in a gap year or a sabbatical semester, taking a little time for myself before diving back in. I have a lot of ideas bubbling around in my head but I'm always open for more. Hit me up for coffee or conversation. And because I'm studying Spanish, una conversación en español que estoy aprendiendo. Thank you to Gwen Maxi, Justine Tobias, Isabel Vasquez, and especially Neroli Price for their help with this talk. Thank you to my incredibly supportive family, my husband, Eric, and kids, Annie, Ben, and Alex and my co-founder, Julie Shapiro. Looking forward to all the favorite things that lie ahead for all of us. Thank you. Yeah.